Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I come bearing gifts today. Okay. Uh, Try to act surprised. I've brought you dessert. <laughs> we didn't necessarily get lunch, but I've I brought you dessert. I'm going to like a knife and fork uh, here. This is, uh, how prepare, like, this is honey babka, which is a traditional Ukrainian dessert, often served at Easter time. This looks great. It's been prepared by the catering staff at Leinster House because they were serving a Ukrainian uh, menu today okay. in honour of the address of President Zelensky. Uh, and I said oh, I'd bring some in, and I have no idea how this is going to taste. I presume, of course, because it's prepared by the, the Oireachtas catering team, I presume that it's lovely. Um, it is Vegetarian friendly. I they did, did have chicken check. Kiev as well. They did have chicken Kiev today as well, I've and some potato cakes. Lift it up and show us. Camera one there. Look at that. That's lovely. It's like um, I'm trying to describe what it's like. Is there? I would like nice some sweet bread. But there you go. It's very nice. Ukrainian cuisine. If anybody else has any other delicacies they want to send us our way, <laughs> do let us know. We will consume on camera. Other people. I remember there's one time I was on the six seven o'clock show back in the day. And it was actually one of my first times on TV. And um, I was on, and Keith Duffy was on alongside me. And uh, there was somebody baking some sort of cake in the kitchen for the cookery slot. And we were all given little bits of it. And he basically force fed me on TV. Oh. Just shoved a, a lump of cake in my face. And I did not know how to react. And that's just how you as you the job. There you go, yeah. That's it. <laughs> and I never left the place. <laughs> Hello, you're very welcome along to episode three of the Group Chat podcast. I'm news correspondent Zara King and I'm joined by my fellow news correspondent Richard Chambers. Hello. We're, um, in, we're in the away grounds here today in the news studio, yeah. <laughs> this is like when the Dublin hurlers are allowed to play in Crow Park. This is Parky Rin, yeah. <laughs> and political correspondent Gavin Riley. Good afternoon, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. You've just hey come guys. out from the Dole. Thanks for the cake. I, I have just come out from the Dole, which is where I brought the cake from, obviously, yes, because uh, and this is why we're all in, well, two, two or three of us are in formal wear today. Richard, Richard for the benefit of people watching, uh, Richard is not at work today, which is why Richard has come wearing his... Richard is casual barbecue. He's still turned up. Casual fine. <laughs> commitment to the gig. He did still show up. That is his level of commitment. Um, so, I, yes, I've just come from Leinster House uh, this afternoon. We were recording this on a Wednesday afternoon. We should say we're putting this out a little bit a little earlier bit than earlier, we usually yes, would. For but a special we, reason. Part of the reason why we're doing that is because today we had an address to, to the Dáil and Shannon uh, sitting jointly, which is in itself a very rare thing mm. uh, by the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky. Um, really busy day around Leinster House. Like, it's the first time since, since COVID, basically, that we've had a full house and something ceremonial and a full public gallery and a full press gallery. I'm also the secretary of the press gallery, so it's especially busy trying to assign seating. And we had some Ukrainian media uh, with us today as well. So it was all sort of very busy. Um, but you, you often, you, you sort of fall into the trap of thinking that these moments are going to be very noble, real you know, occasions of state where somebody is going to address you and that they're going to start off with a little bit of mollycoddling and talk about the great profound links between their countries. And you might have thought, you know, it's 30 years last week since Ireland and Ukraine formally established diplomatic ties and there, there wasn't any of that because Ukraine is a country at war. So mm. Vladimir Zelensky, oh, no, Zelensky didn't, definitely just got straight into it. It's yeah, interesting he, he to see that. Yeah. Did not have time to, to do mollycoddling and to say how great it was to be able to speak to us, and that it was sad it was under those circumstances. He was straight into it. Literally, his first line was, "So last night the Russians continued their bombardments, and this is what they struck." And there really was no escaping just the gravity of what he was talking about. I think you even see it from the video of his effectively a Zoom call. 
how tired he looks now. Yeah. I think small talk is probably the last thing on his mind. Like, people will have seen the comparisons. I know what yeah. you're talking about, Zara. There was photographs. Yeah, I saw that there was photographs uh, taken of Zelensky from literally a couple of days before the war broke out mm. and only just very recently, and he looks like a completely different person. It really has taken a physical toll on him, you know? Yeah. Uh, so he was giving his address and he uh, largely sort of spoke about what Russia has been up to, and we will talk about that more a little bit later um, in today's podcast. But he was effectively calling on the rest of the world to basically make Russia a pariah state, saying that, you know, we can't still allow businesses to think that the welfare of Ukrainians is less important than their own margins and their own bottom line. Russia cannot be involved in the circle of noble nations anymore that has to be uh, completely, basically excommunicated from the world. Um, And basically calling on Ireland to do that. A little bit of a compliment for Ireland's humanitarian uh, efforts so far, uh, noting that Ireland is a militarily neutral country, but at least we had been there from the get-go, that there was no hesitation about which side of this Ireland was on for all of the... um, the humanitarian assistance Ireland has offered for the volume of refugees that were brought in, uh, but really calling on Ireland, if it's possible, to do more to pursue the highest possible level of sanctions to try and basically extricate Russia from the international community. I thought it was, you know, when you're talking about him getting straight into it, I thought there was a couple of things that he said that were really shocking, you know, just about the humanitarian situation on the ground there when he talked about things like um, people being able to melt down the snow to be able to have water Mm. and how because the weather had changed now they weren't able to do that. Mm. That was the reality of what he was really bringing to the table yeah, there today. Yeah, which is a really important and sobering reminder because, as I said, you know, because especially for a lot of first-time TDs, this was the first time that they were even in a packed house and to have a packed public gallery, packed press gallery, even distinguished visitors gallery. And, and you could so easily sort of fall into the idea that this was going to be something a little bit more high level, but it wasn't. It was so immediately just down at the ground level of the conditions that people are enduring, that the, the shelters that they're taking refuge in all being bombarded, the hospitals that were attacked, the ambulances that were attacked, um, even going so far as to say that Russia is trying now to use hunger as a weapon, that they're literally depositing landmines in some of the fields that they're laying behind because they want to sow such instability in Ukraine afterwards. They want any surviving Ukrainian government, he's alleging, uh, not to be able to feed its own people so that there would be permanent distrust and, and unease sown in that country. What was the atmosphere like? So obviously as you say, packed house. It was interesting to see some journalists who normally wouldn't wear a tie were wearing a tie today. That's um, the rules of the gallery, with it, which I am notionally responsible for enforcing, even though I, I personally dislike those rules. Did you send a text to that group chat this morning and be like, please wear a tie? I, I didn't, but I didn't. Wear your best. To, I had to send a reminder because there's a few non-full-timers uh, who were visiting uh, who were always like to, to be able to bring in. I had to remind them that you had to wear a tie and that you weren't allowed to wear jeans. Yeah. The, the, the question, though, I have is like, when you have all these people who are there, obviously the Ukrainian ambassador who we're all familiar mm-hmm. with at this point was there. There were people um, who are refugees from Ukraine were there as well. What was yeah. it like when the speech is on? Were you looking at them and what, how were they reacting to it? Because we yeah. all hear the speech and we've seen it on the news, mm. but it's a different thing for us to hear it as opposed to them. Yeah. They've lived it. Just to sort of see a, a real life sort of a, a test case environment where you see it, it landing for people. And, and yes, it is totally different because you're not just watching it on a Zoom where you're just looking at pictures of Michal Martin and a side profile of him taking notes or looking very stoic. That it's There's people in the room who have lived those experiences. There were about a dozen Um, Ukrainian refugees in the public gallery and then about six more in what's called the Distinguished Visitors Gallery. They were sitting there with the Ukrainian ambassador and one of them was openly sobbing the the whole way throughout. It actually reminded me a little bit, Zara, of what you said a few weeks ago when you were talking about the the constant soundtrack to what you met at the border between Russia and between Ukraine, excuse me, and Poland that there was people who were just openly just found the whole thing to be immensely distressing, that it it should be in any other circumstances a, a point of great pride that the leader of your country is addressing the parliament of another country in which yeah. you are an emigrant or an expat. And, and these people just found it so moving because the, the obvious emergency circumstances of all of this having to happen 
are so just abnormal that they are so out of the ordinary of what anyone would ever expect and then not only for it to be of course you know an address by a leader in wartime but a video address from a secure location with an interpreter while he's wearing his military fatigues because he's never going to know when he might have to, to take shelter himself just everything about it is so far removed from what the normality of a full diplomatic address to be and it was very you could see it written on, on a lot of their faces they found it very very moving and I was speaking to his most senior advisor the day before he did an interview with us just before the address to the door and he was telling me that Zelensky is on about 10 calls a day to 10 different countries yeah. that's really been a big part of his job at the moment is, yeah. is engaging with all these countries around the world and I think what's really important and what we kind of saw from that is Zelensky is very clear in saying he doesn't want your sympathy, he wants your support. And that's start, really yeah. strong, isn't it? I mean, he's sort of saying, you know, thank you for your kindness and compassion, but it's really not your sympathy. I mean, he said very clearly, I can't tolerate indecisiveness. You know, he said he couldn't believe really that we still have to convince Europe, despite everything that's going on, mm. to push on further sanctions. And also in terms of that application for membership to the European Union, that was a big yeah, part of it. Today. Which at least is one thing that Ireland has been unequivocally in favour of. And even from the very get-go, Michal Martin has always talked about, not even just for Ukraine, but for other countries in that that part of the world, in that sort of uh, that post-Balkanized world, that the, the way for them to to embrace Western society or the way to embed democratic values, as he sees it, is for them to be brought into the European family. So the likes of of Montenegro and North Macedonia, he is fully in favour of countries like that being able to get involved in the European Union. And um, a little bit more of what Vladimir Zelensky said. He said that the connections of Russian banks with the financial system of the world needed to be blocked. So evidently looking for sanctions beyond uh, what is already there. And he said and. This this, I think, was quite telling when he said it, that the world has developed appropriate mechanisms a long time ago. Everyone knows what needs to be done. The only obstacle is the lack of integrity among individual leaders for now. Political leaders, business leaders, who still think that war and war crimes are not as frightening as financial damage mm. and calling on Ireland to be at the vanguard to change that attitude. Yeah, and there is, there is still, I think, it's been interesting from my perspective to see how little talk there has been about financial services in this country and Russia and there have been people who have pointed that in the past and yet it doesn't really seem to come into the conversation yeah. so You were talking to us last mind. week about Bill yeah. Browder Vladimir yeah. Putin's number one enemy and, and the point he was making about the Russian money in the IFSC for example Exactly yeah. well, it's interesting as well that um, there was this conversation about you know we hear today that there's more sanctions on the way from the EU and one of the people being targeted is our friend Oleg Der Deripaska uh, he's the, the oligarch whose gaffe was uh, effectively broken into by protesters in London. He is the part owner of the parent company of Organish Illumina in Limerick. So he's going to be on the sanctions list now. Like that plant will still be open. But it's interesting that there's been a bit of f what seems to be from the outside looking, and maybe I'm wrong, but there has been a bit of foot dragging about mm -hmm. from an Irish perspective of naming people. Uh, I don't think that's something which Vladimir Zelensky mm. would be too too keen on. But he was quite complimentary too. I think we have a clip as well of, um, of, of his speech just where he basically thanked the people of Ireland for what they've done. And although you are a neutral country, you have not uh, remained neutral to uh, the disaster and to the mishaps that Russia has brought to Ukraine. I'm grateful to you to every citizen of Ireland. Thank you for supporting sanctions against Russia. Thank you for the humanitarian and financial support extended to our country. And thank you for your caring about Ukrainian people who found shelter on your land. So Gavin, just in terms of the reaction to this afterwards, uh, Sinn Féin's Mary Lou MacDonald is now calling for the expulsion of the 
Russian yeah, ambassador. And has been for a while. And actually, it's it's a very interesting point that you, you bring up because uh, that was the linchpin of Mary Lou McDonald's speech today. So the way it happens is that um, there are 10 dull groupings. There's the three parties that are in government. There's four opposition parties. And then there's three groups of independent TDs. And they all got a chance to nominate someone to, to have their say in response to what uh, President Zelensky said. And there was a sort of a constant theme all day of there being like almost unanimity or almost unity on everything. So, for example, even when President Zelensky's speech finished, uh, there was a full standing ovation, but at least everyone stood. There were a handful of TDs, mostly from people for profit, who didn't clap because as they saw it, although they're standing in solidarity with the Ukrainian people, they weren't going to applaud a president who wants NATO to implement a no-fly zone, which could escalate a conflict, which could bring the world to the brink of nuclear war, and they just don't think that's the right way to go. So they wouldn't applaud. Um, then you had, uh, just at the end of Eamon Ryan's speech, where Eamon Ryan was saying, you know, we're going to stand with the people of Ukraine. This isn't going to be a, a short-term friendship. We're going to be in this for the long haul and we will not let them down. And I spotted from the, the press gallery a moment where Mary Lou MacDonald and Micheál Martin almost seemed to kind of nod at each other, that they were almost sort of saying, in a sense, yes, this is, this is a long-term friendship that we're going to forge. And then Mary Lou MacDonald stands up and says, we need to get rid of the ambassador, which is something that the, the three government parties, for now at least, are still saying we shouldn't tolerate. And then you had Richard Boy Barrett, uh, who, as I mentioned, did, didn't applaud, uh, standing up and offering sympathies to the people of Ukraine, but also saying that there are plenty of other conflicts around the world that should get the same attention that don't, uh, and calling basically for the world to demilitarise immediately followed by Carl Berry representing the independent uh, group with the regional independent very group. Vocal about, yeah, it was very vocal about, aid, about yeah. standing up saying that we should have followed the, the lead of, of Sweden and Finland who are neutral countries but who armed Ukraine to help its own uh, resistance and saying we have a pile of, of anti-rocket missiles in the Kura an hour away which are about to lose their shelf life so why wouldn't we go and deliver them to them? You he know? also was very clear in saying that he just believed that this would be won on the battlefield though. He had no doubt about that in his mind. His opinion was mm. very much this is the only way it's going to be won. Which is the, the real, uh, the, the striking thing, because one of the things that was remarkable about him saying that is that the, the group of Ukrainian refugees and members of the U Ukrainian community who I mentioned were in the public gallery. They applauded at that point. Mm -hmm. Carl Berry said, we've got stuff an hour's drive down the road and it's all available to us and it's, it's about to expire. Let's put it to good use and help these people defend themselves. And they applauded. And there was only like a small smattering of applause from some of the deputies in the chamber because neutrality is still a very sensitive talking point. Sure but is. those in the gallery who are a little bit closer to the, the literal front lines were, were in, in unity at all of that. And there's one other thing which I just wanted to, to mention about because I will need to move on in a minute. Um, we talked about the, the members of the Ukrainian community who were there. Um, I couldn't help be struck by uh, one little girl. There was a, f a five-year-old girl who was in the Distinguished Visitors Gallery, just a couple of rows behind the ambassador, uh, whose name is Anastasia uh, Samanova. She's originally from Donetsk. And she is a refugee. She's come here with her mother, uh, Yana, from, from Donetsk. Um, her father, uh, Lana's partner, is still in Russia trying to, to fight for effectively her homeland. Uh, and she got a shout out at the very end. Uh, Kahirlik uh, of the Shannon, Mark Daly, gave her a little mention and said, you know, that we're, we're pleased to have you here, but we sort of regret that you have to be here. Um, and it was really remarkable because I just sort of spotted her throughout the speeches. And she's a refugee in another country. She's in the Distinguished Visitors Gallery of a foreign parliament, which is, you know, a, a very surreal place to be. When but she's still only, she's five years old. Mm -hmm. Like she had her hair tied up in pigtails. She spent a lot of the hour listening to speeches, 
colouring in on a colouring book because it's a more stimulating thing yeah, for yeah. five-year-olds that then sitting in a foreign parliament listening to wow. condemnations of war. And and she she was a rock star. Everyone wanted to go and get a picture with her afterwards. The Taoiseach did. I saw the meeting her after. And, and, and she, she seems like the, the, the happiest moment. I passed her again when I was leaving with my, my honey bubka in hand. Um, she was standing on the plinth on one of the little concrete bollards uh, asking her mother to take a photograph because she was just so entertained this by standing up and that's on the little thing. perch. And for that, kids that's what across, they've been robbed of. And it, like I was outside. I, I'm not working today but I decided like well, this is a little bit of history I'll go in and I actually know a couple of people who wanted to be there Ukrainians who we will have met yeah, each yeah. of us will have met yeah. um, I met Pavlo who was um, there and he's taken in two families who he knows from Ukraine it was great to see him again but it really was it was just a nice sort of oh how's it going how are you guys getting on what's been new since last time I saw you and that wasn't just to me chatting to them that was to a few of them like they all a lot of them will know each other from turning up at protests this was a moment of solidarity it's a different thing but, oh my God, again, it's the kids as well. It's always the kids, as you always say, sort of Zara as well, oh, yeah. is that the kids were out there and um, as soon as Zelensky's speech was over, um, they burst into the national anthem. And it was just one of those hugely emotional things. I posted a clip up on Instagram and on Twitter about it. And it was just like, oh my God, and you're seeing some of their parents are behind them, just wiping tears from their eyes. And it's one of those things where it's just like, you can't help but be feel a bit of the emotion of the moment, but also you step back and you're like, holy God, how quickly the world has completely changed. And just to be there and to chat to some people who we've met, whose stories we've shared on the news, and for them to be like, well, this is an incredible moment that we're here and we're talking about, you know, what we've all been through and what this country is doing to try and help more people like us um, to, to get to safety. And I just think it was just a really, really kind of a special moment, really. No, I think it was really important and really special. I think the kids, to, as you said there, you know, speaking to Zelensky, senior advisor the other night, I just wanted to ask him on behalf of those kids who go to bed at night wondering when will they see their father again? Um, would there be an opportunity if the war continues on for several months to allow men to leave Ukraine? And he said, we're doing our best for those families. But really, at the moment, it's just not something that is even up for discussion. And I think that's incredibly, incredibly sad for those kids. And they don't know. Like, the family separation is the thing yeah. in all of this. Like, it kind of gets lost sometimes. It's one of the things that we like. We often have to park when we're covering like, a humanitarian story as well as a geopolitical one, that you have to try and park your own emotions and be able to relay stuff factually. But I remember like there was a couple of weeks ago where um, for, for, for another job that I do, for a radio show that I was talking to a Ukrainian MP, uh, Lesya Vasilenko, who uh, for the second time in nine months uh, had to hand over control of her little, her baby who's not even a year old and have the, the kids brought to a safe place and, and not know when, if ever, she'll see them again. And I remember just all fair saying, you know, we, we can often work unpredictable and fairly wild hours in this job and you miss a lot of bedtimes and stuff and you feel guilty about it. But the idea of handing them over and not knowing when you're going to see them again. And that being done on, on a national industrial scale. Did you see the pictures are actually, the picture of, um, it's gone viral. It was up by the, the PA, the Press Association News Agency did it. This mother basically wrote the kid's name that. and the numbers yeah, in her back. Contact, her date of birth. Yeah. Wrote, the oh child was only three, I think, and the mother had written the date of birth and contact numbers for not just her, but extended family members in case that the mother was killed. That if the child was found, that they could call a next of kin. So she had written Enviro on the back of the child's body. And, and we're only six weeks in. Yeah. Only six weeks in.
Um, one of the things about uh, images like that is that people can often be very sceptical about the truth of them, which probably brings us to, to our guest today. Uh, we're very, very lucky on the podcast today to be joined by uh, Malachi Brown, who's a visual investigations editor and a Pulitzer winner. Like that, that's, that's a way oh, to start for him. That's, that's a way to start yeah, for a yeah. first guest, isn't it? Uh, on the group chat. So we spoke to him before we came on and we started by asking him just to talk us through the process of, of trying to establish fact from fiction in an environment like this. So we're joined now by our first official group chat guest. He is the uh, video investigations journalist with the New York Times, Maliki Brown. Maliki, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So first of all, can you tell us a bit about the work that you've been doing, particularly on the situation in Ukraine, Maliki? Yeah, um, our work on Ukraine began before the war started. In fact, uh, we had a team over there on the ground along the front lines. Um, you know, um, documenting the preparations, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that the Ukrainians were making and uh, also just, you know, monitoring those satellite images that were coming out um, <clears throat> that everybody saw uh, in the in the lead up to the, to the to the war. And then when it started, um, you know, so much of it was being documented and captured by Ukrainian citizens right across the country. Um, that first night, there was a barrage of, of missiles that hit um, multiple cities right across Ukraine, even right over 150 kilometers from the Polish border. And so we were <clears throat> frantically trying to uh, collect and verify and publish uh, what we knew about what was happening. Um, we had you know, journalists in various cities on the ground as well, so they were feeding back. So it was very much a breaking news story for the first few weeks. Um, in fact, we sent um, some of our team over to Europe so that we would have 24-hour coverage um, and so, so that was it. It was collecting these, um, you know, nuggets of information and, and visuals that were emerging from across the country so that we could document what was happening um, and, and verify that information and combine it with uh, the reports from um, our correspondents on the ground. And then over the last couple of weeks, we've been, you know, as, as the intensity of that has sort of eased off a little bit, uh, we've been doing more deeper dive stories. Maliki, can I ask then, when you get to that process and you find a video that's interesting from someone who is in Ukraine, how do you begin that process then of investigating uh, whether it's real, what it actually says about the situation? Because everybody, and we've been talking about Bucha, and that's obviously been a very, very high profile situation, which you guys have been able to verify. So could you talk about that, to us about that process of how you go about that from when you see that first video that starts things off? It begins, um, you know, with your preparation before the event happens, actually. So in the weeks beforehand, we're lucky enough to have a couple of Ukrainians on our team. Um, and uh, in the weeks beforehand, we were also collecting the telegram channels of towns and cities across Ukraine and monitoring those. Um, and in the course of doing that, you kind of have to get a good sense of what's a, a, a good source of uh, information and, and what, you know, the more sketchy ones. Um, and so you, you know, I'm building Twitter lists as well, doing the same on other platforms, watching community Facebook groups and things like that. So you have some sort of sense of the quality of the information, but you still need to vet every one. And it's the old practice that we used to do back at Storyful when I was working there, um, you know, up to 2014, was where did this happen? When did it happen? And who's posting it? Now, in Ukraine, it's difficult sometimes to establish who's posting it. Um, because a lot of the towns are, are aggregators and people are, are filing in content. But as I say, you, you get a sense of of, um, of of what a good source is. And the other ones then are, you know, map uh, comparing it with satellite imagery or Yandex imagery. Yandex is, is quite uh, good for Ukraine. 
um, and the you know the equivalent of Google Street View um, archival photographs that people have uploaded on Flickr or onto those platforms and and, uh, and tagged in those locations so that you're confirming where it is and then. Um, establishing when this happened. I mean, we're um, relying on our correspondence, weather reports, um, and then cross-corroboration with, you know, say, live streams of the cities um, and other sources of information. So it's never one sort of source. It's always like, who's your second source? Who's your third source? And, and stacking all of these little factoids that give you confidence um, in, in a particular piece of content or information. And that can be useful as well, not, not just in... Um, just very quickly, not just in, in those images, but in characterizing how we're presenting what's happening and what the headline should be on the homepage at the New York Times as well. Um, Maliki, you mentioned a lot of the satellite imagery that you use, and that would be you know, new to a lot of people. People might have thought of using Google Street View, but they would never think of having some sort of satellite imagery. Do you have open source access to some satellite imagery, or, or where do you get that from so that you can use it for comparisons? And do you ever wonder, given the amount of misinformation that's going on, whether some of the imagery that you're being fed to use as a, a reference point is actually true itself? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, we have a satellite expert on our team, Christoph Cuttle. He was one of the first hires onto the team five years ago. Um, and uh, he has built relationships with Planet and Maxar Technologies. Um, and so we have access to their proprietary platforms um, and, uh, and imagery. Um, and so, you know, the question on Sunday was, you know, is what Russia is saying true um, or um, because photographers got in there on April 1st and documented these bodies. Uh, they weren't able to access them prior to that, but the satellites are, are imaging that every day, circling Bucha and other parts of the world, taking photographs. Um, and so by going back through March, I was able to um, match, you know, basically show, see the bodies on the street uh, in the exact position in which they were found on April 1st. Um, and the, those images, you know, they, they weren't the highest quality. So then I contacted Maxar and they very quickly sent other images that they hadn't published that were much clearer and higher definition. And you could see the orientation of the bodies. You could even see the clothes, um, the shade of the clothes on one of the victims. And so this was absolutely, you know, those bodies on those streets for weeks. Um, and um, critically at the time when Russia was in control of the area. And that rebutted their their denials of response. Uh, well, the denials that they they were uh, there at the time that these uh, atrocities happened. And Maliki, so often we hear that saying, "Truth is the first casualty of war." And you talked there about getting a sense of a good source. What is? How does one get a sense of a good source in a war zone in a situation like that? Um, whether over time their information stands up, or whether they are. Um, to use uh, my old colleague uh, Gavin Sheridan's uh, phrase, scraper McScrapey, you know, where they're just ripping stuff from all over the internet and just pushing it out there without any fact checking. Um, <clears throat> so, so that's that's what you do, you know, you you just judge the quality of the information by your own independent reporting, whether they're um, they're a good source or whether you know the, you know, but you need to fact check everything anyway, you know. So um, it just helps you. Um, in that first step, you know, and uh, to, to cut through sort of the fog of war and, and the chaos of all of that information, because there's a lot of it coming out. And when you see Russia, Maliki, when they actually call out your work, like state media in Russia has 
shown some of the satellite imagery that you've used in your investigation to prove what happened in Bucha, and they're just calling it a flat lie. How, how do you guys react when that happens? Because you obviously have a familiarity, you've won your Pulitzer uh, for your work in identifying a Russian strike on a, on a, a hospital in Syria. So you're familiar with the handiwork here. Uh, how do you react then, I suppose, when they call you out and just, like, despite all the evidence in the world, are saying, no, no, this isn't us? Well, we respond to it if they provide facts and evidence to counter it. We'll examine that, absolutely. Uh, but even yesterday, the UN, Russian UN ambassador at, um, at the Security Council was calling it, you know, lies on, on, on that platform. Um, and in fact, such was their outrage that they were being accused of, um, uh, of association with these, uh, th these killings that they called for an emergency uh, United Nations meeting but that's the kind of the Russian playbook that we've seen over the years. You know, they will <clears throat> sort of manufacture their evidence or, uh, to quote Kellyanne Conway, use alternative facts um, to, to present some sort of narrative um, and just outright, you know, deny it, but without any actual evidence. And so there's only so much attention that you pay to that um, and you just kind of continue to do your work. Um, to get back to your other question about whether you can prove these uh, satellite images are from that particular day, you can. There are scientific shadow calculators for a certain place at a certain time on a certain day. And you can see the, the, the lampposts that are there. And so you can do a quick calculation on that. And even, even you know, there are websites that allow you to go to that location and show what the, what the shadow would be like and they match up perfectly. Um, so, and all of these uh, satellites um, send the metadata, the, the hour, minute and second that they took the image um, when they're when they're being up there, when, when they're when they're being posted, but I don't know if you saw last night. We also posted um, pretty conclusive video. Well, it's absolutely conclusive video of the Russians firing on a cyclist who along that same street as as they turned the corner. So that's very difficult for the Russians to deny. It's really interesting just the process behind it. It is like putting a jigsaw together. Can you tell us a little bit about how your team works together. I mean, you must have a particular personality type to be the sort of person who's able to sort of find these things and look for that needle in the haystack. Yeah, we have a great team. Um, it's um, an international team and, you know, a, a mix of backgrounds and, and language skills and then technical competencies in terms of the reporting. This is a, quite a technical type of reporting. Uh, and then we have video editors and animators as part of the team, but it's it's a very collaborative process, and so it requires a certain sort of approach and and, and personality, if you like. Um, you know, folks who are not um, fighting each other for the byline and, and that kind of stuff. So you know, just a, a, it, it's kind of all the open source community where you know you share your information and you work together to to put that solve that jigsaw puzzle as you as you describe. Um, so it's you know. Um, you know, animators, editors, story producers, um, uh, and script writers, as well as the reporters then who are quite adept at just kind of turning over rocks all over the, the web and, um, and finding information. Two weeks ago, the team published um, intercepted radio communications, again, this time in, in, of Russian soldiers on the ground in Ukraine. Um, you remember that they destroyed some uh, communications towers they would have re required those for their secure communications. And so they were forced onto open frequencies that could be recorded um, and intercepted, and even people could join the conversations. And we were able to verify those, um, those recordings 
uh, by matching it up with what the Russians were doing on the ground. And there's evidence also of potential war crimes in there where they're saying, let's withdraw our property, our armor, and we're going to bomb that civilian area. Um, they also talk about their logistical problems and their, their problems getting um, supplies and, um, uh, and whatnot. Well, Malachi, thank you so much for joining us. I think we all agree the work you're doing right now is very important and uh, we really appreciate it. And thanks to you and your team. Uh, thanks for joining us on the group chat. Thanks, Malachi. Thank you. Thanks for the interview. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I just think he's just a fascinating guy, is Malachi. I mean, I've known him for... 11 years now. Used to write a few articles. I with him. I, I, I wrote a few articles. Not great articles. Pretty poor articles, I'll say. As a student as journalist, a, Richard Chambers. I was definitely a post-student journalist, but he's always been just a fascinating guy. And always you went just on been... to win a Pulitzer and you went on to get force-fed by Keith Duffy. And... I know. <laughs> it swings and roundabouts. The crossroads of our lives have taken us to different places. Uh, just a fascinating guy. And really, it's just that dogged thing because I think that there's been so many questions which I think each of us have probably gotten. Yeah. And it's interesting, it depends on what platform you're on. Mm. Just the level of questioning of things, and it, people are right to question things, but there is definitely a huge sort of swathe of misinformation that is out there. And having people like Malachi, like his team, and there's other units around the world who are doing a similar job of trying to verify things, I think it's a hugely beneficial thing. And I think it's great to, great to have him on. No, I totally agree. And I think it's really interesting and really important because obviously in the jobs that we do, we hear about the type of work that Malachi does and we understand it. Um, but I suppose for other people, you know, so often we hear people talking about like fake news and how can you believe what you read online. Um, somebody like Malachi coming in and telling us that, you know, they can measure the shadows or the weather or things oh, like that. that you know, it's so clever. Though. The work they do is so clever. Which actually reminded me that some of our camera crews do use technology like that sometimes. That Some, some of them, you know, we said that this is great. All fair, we spoke to Malachi and said like, this is great for nerds because nerds love all this sort of triangulation stuff. <laughs> some of our camera crews do that. Uh, like this, people love in the podcast when we sort of bring them behind the curtain a little bit. Yeah. Some of our camera crews use apps like that to figure out that if they're going to be at a certain location at a certain time of day and they're not familiar with it, like if you're going abroad and you might just be filming on the side of the street and you mm. need to check what the cameras are, or the shadows are going to be like, they actually use apps to figure out how much in shadow you're going to be or whether yeah. you're going to have the or sun in your face. Yeah. Uh, and therefore then they, they figure out what lights to bring or do they need to bring some sort of shadow kit or extra panel lights to, to work it all out. So it does have its, its other applications as well as, you know, trying to, to verify genocide on an industrial scale. Really interesting. Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to move on, guys. We're going to talk a little bit about the um, 
big significant win I suppose for Graeme Dwyer this week Richard uh, convicted killer Graeme Dwyer uh, winning that legal battle uh, in an attempt to have that murder conviction mm. overturned you were covering that this week what exactly happened? So this is the Court of Justice of the European Union this was not unexpected we had a sort of a preliminary opinion given by one of the court's most senior advisors and it basically rhymed exactly with what we heard uh, earlier on in the week from the Court of Justice of the European Union. That is basically that Ireland's law, which governed and allowed for the collection and retention of mobile phone da data, which was uh, very, very central to the conviction of Graham Dwyer for the murder of Elaine O'Hara, that sort of general and indiscriminate, to use their words, retention of that data, whether it's location data, traffic data, metadata is the whole overall umbrella term, that basically is invalid. You can't do that. So. A lot of people have been asking, what does this mean then for his appeal um, to the Court of Appeal here in Ireland? So there's two things to this. This uh, decision by the Court of Justice of the European Union is going to go to our Supreme Court. They're likely to go, well, we have to go along with that. Mm. Um, but the most important, the most pertinent question, I think, for most members of the public is what it means for his actual appeal against his conviction. Now, there's a couple of different legal opinions on what this will actually mean for that because there's been previously some important legal judgments on this. That basically there's a, an important Supreme Court judgment in this country here from 2015, which meant that even if, as we heard from the Court of Just, Justice of the European Union, evidence might be inadmissible, that it can still be used if the people who gathered it, i.e. Um, the Gardaí, gathered it in good faith or that was inverted, inadvertently in breach of the law. So, so the basically, they used the law of the land, and the guards yeah. did. So the you, evidence that you've, you've gathered could, in hindsight, have turned out to be gathered illegally. Mm. But if the guards, whoever's prosecuting, didn't know that at the time when they gathered in good faith, and the prosecution was based on that, that it could still stand. Yep. It's clear to run at that point. Yeah, the, the principle is there in, in Irish law. Also, the Court of Justice... But it means as of yesterday, information gathering... This is, the, and I think this is actually, because I think obviously we are focused on this from the perspective of Graham Dwyer's legal battle. case, but it's the broader implications. That That's actually yeah. one of the most interesting things about it, Zara, is that actually from speaking to some guards who I know have been working in this broad area now for a long time, they think their jobs have completely changed. And it actually isn't even just here. There was 12 or more different countries of the European Union which were interested in this case because, and they made submissions into it because they were very concerned that it's going to be very hard in this day and age when so much is dependent on what happens with phones, how hard it can then be to secure convictions when so much of investigations depend on that data. So there was a huge amount of eyeballs across Europe on this. Um, legal experts sort of have different opinions on what it will actually mean for um, Graham Dwyer's appeal but it will change, really, the job of the guards. We've already heard from Helen McEntee yesterday about mm. this, saying this is going to feed into new legislation here. It's a big turning point, I think, in how uh, evidence is gathered for prosecutions. Mobile phone data will still be a key part of it, just that it won't be able to go for, right, you yeah. can stretch back Which is two actually, years it's remarkable when you consider that there were 12 other countries that were sort of had listening briefs or who were like, were so invested in the case because, okay, yes, it may be Graeme Dwyer's individual prosecution is the way, as you say, that we're all kind of framing this because that's what's brought it up. But if, if those 12 other countries feel like a potential future crime might be harder to prosecute because they may not be able to use somebody's mobile phone records to triangulate their whereabouts, then that, that's an issue for the prosecution of crime. I mean, on the flip side, it's also a bit of an issue for civil liberties because if, if you don't commit a crime, 
is it still fair enough for the state to basically have a record of everywhere that you've been for a couple mm. of years because that's effectively what your mobile phone like geo- geolocation data amounts to yeah. so like th- there is a bit of a balance but like it's going to be fascinating to see how it does come out in the wash and it's already been such a long running appeals saga that now it has to go back having already been to one of Europe's highest courts has to go back to Ireland's highest court and then go to the court of appeal beneath that to see what the consequences will be it'll be Going on for a while, yeah, yeah I think. This, this one... I think this is going to be really interesting, actually, to see how this one plays out. Really fascinating. OK, we're going to move on to a story that, I'm going to be honest, <laughs> totally passed me by this week. I can't... I'm I can't actually stunned. I'm sorry, I've, uh, to I want to make the point there. I, I know, can't sorry. believe the Bella Hadid, Richard Boyd Barrett thing passed you by. Totally I have no idea how that happened. How did that happen? Did it pass you by? No, it, no, no. so into it. Like, you were so... Sorry, I... Richard was, like, horrified yesterday. When I was I actually amazed. I was just so amazed. I, I just realised that I don't follow Bella Hadid on my work Instagram, so, which I'm on all the time. So I missed a lot of this. It's, and it was it's only a breakdown of business and pleasure. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> nah, I sorry, Bella. I don't follow Bella Hadid on my work Instagram. So I didn't see this. And I loved your reaction yesterday. You were, like, absolutely... You almost unfriended me yesterday when I told you that I, was I didn't. I was really surprised. Sorry, I just, okay, so just for people who don't know... Bella Hadid appears to be quite pally with Richard Boyd Barrett, which I mean, is like, completely you're bizarre. You're for, for squares like me who actually don't know who Bella Hadid is, or okay. who at least didn't before. Well, Bella Hadid this. is one of the most famous supermodels biggest, in the world. One of the biggest models on the planet. Victoria's Secrets model, done loads of campaigns. Yes. Her sister is Gigi Hadid. Their mother is uh, Yolanda, who was a real housewife of Beverly Hills. They're like Gigi proper... Gigi also was formerly with Zayn from Malik. One Direction. That's all over and they now. They're not together anymore. Yeah. Bella Hadid also dated The Weeknd. Yeah. You know this. I do know this. I do. God, this is this is this is why I'm here. No, he's I just I'm, I'm checking back. Everyone would think that I know loads about pop culture when incidentally I actually oh. how bad am I? I know nothing about pop culture. Richard would be names, strongest point. It wouldn't be it's a strongest not my point. strongest yeah. point. Richard would name celebrities. So, so be like, I don't she's got like her. so Bella Hadid has like what fifty million or so. Am I, have I? Let's just say she's really she's famous. Like huge she's really following. Famous. Big yeah. Instagram. But the thing about it is, uh, she's actually she's half Palestinian. Her dad is Palestinian. Uh, she's very much into... Mohammed Hadid. Yep. Yeah. Uh, very much into sharing um, sort of postings about the situation in Palestine. She appears to have come across Richard Boyd Barrett. And I had this theory and I was like, this is... I felt like... How do you think she I, came across Richard Boyd This is the thing. This, this has been confirmed. No, 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 no. This is my that. Hercule Poirot moment <laughs> where I was sitting there and I actually said it to people in this newsroom there a few days ago. I was like, I think I know how she came across him. Because Richard Boyd Barrett had a speech in the doll. That sounded like an impression that you do of a certain politician. I don't know who that was that. then. Tell you I'm going to wait after. The point is, Richard Boyd Barrett had a speech not so long ago, which went mega viral mm. is the situation on, on, on the comparative reactions of the West to Ukraine and the situation in Palestine and I think Al Jazeera and Middle Eastern Eye a lot of these big um, websites which focus in on Middle Eastern issues they blew it up this went huge like I, I, I've never seen an Irish political speech get as many um, retweets and stuff like that so I think and it has been since been, I think, confirmed by Richard Boyard himself uh, that this <laughs> yes. is how this is how Bella Hadid uh, stumbled across Richard Boyd Barrett and a great a great a great partnership and coming which, together. Which is one formed. thing, but then so she was sharing last week another a separate post by Richard Boyd Barrett to do with animal welfare. She must have been scrolling back, is what I'm saying. Like you know, she Sorry, went. Hang on a second. 
Is she just a full-blown supporter? She hashtagged. I think she hashtagged people before profit. Next, sorry, can we just say, Richard Boy Barrett is not a stranger to celebrity, Gavin. I mean, he isn't. No, he's not. In fairness, uh, Richard is, is quite open about being adopted and his birth mother is the actress Sinead Cusick mm. and he's got very uh, profound links to, to the rest of the Cusick family, a very well-known uh, artistic family. Richard is, is often actually, you know, it's not often highlighted because Richard is very vocal in other things, but Richard is a very vocal supporter in Dáil Éireann of the arts as well and the need to, to secure uh, performing artistry. He was very vocal throughout the pandemic about what we were going to do to safeguard the arts when you couldn't have theatres and, and audiences in, in concert venues and the likes. Um, but Richard was asked this yesterday. Richard uh, and the rest of people for profit uh, were on the Plinth at Leinster House on Tuesday where um, he was, of course, inevitably um, asked about this... How could you not ask him ...this about? most curious event diagram overlaps uh, between uh, himself and Bella Hadid. And he confirmed, yes, his theory being um, that, that she saw one of his previous Palestine videos and followed him for that reason. Does he, um, can I, can I, does he get who she is? Like, does he understand this? Let's play people the clip because um, he doesn't sound hugely overwhelmed by the fame of his new follower. I wasn't aware of Bella Hadid, uh, but it would appear she's an activist and an advocate on behalf of Palestine and women's rights and progressive causes. So I'm very glad to have made contact with an activist. Uh, and I'm always keen to meet activists who are campaigning on similar issues to ourselves. Uh, and I did send back a message thanking her for the follow and the share uh, and just saying I'm always glad to be in touch with activists who campaign on similar uh, issues to ourselves. She hasn't gotten back yet. I, I honestly don't know, to be honest. I don't know. Uh, I mean, to be honest, I've, you know, we've a, lot, we've a lot on our plate in terms of issues to campaign for. So... Uh, I know it's of entertainment value to uh, to people out there, but uh, I think I'm more focused on the campaign issues, and it would seem Bella Hadid is, is focused uh, on the substantial issues rather than the, the glamour of it all. OK, hang on a second. So Richard Boyd Barrett slid into Bella Hadid's DMs. Is that, is that what's happened here? Is that the, is that Not the like parliamentary way of saying way, it? Yeah. The parlance of our times, yeah. yes. This to, is an unbelievable to, story. To, to thank her for he, sharing so, his content. Did he, did, he, did he get a response? No. Ah, no, left on red. Right. Left on red by <laughs> Bella Hadid. Two blue ticks. That can be a, that can be a, a political there. memoir title for Richard <laughs> Boyd Barrett. Uh, I just think it's fascinating. It is a nice little bit of lightness. Do you think you could ask her to be on the pod, actually? Let's, let's could, see. We could get into one in Put a request in for that, will you? I will get Let us know next week how you get on with that. Excellent. OK, finally, this week, guys, I want to talk a bit about Situation Dublin Airport. Slightly improved. Yeah. Um, but still an absolute nightmare. Yeah. Uh, well, my, my parents were in uh, Dublin Airport on Saturday morning for uh, a holiday abroad. They haven't had many since the, the pandemic started altogether. And they were in the airport for a flight. I think it was sometime between half eight and nine. They were in mm. the airport at like half past four. They were in the queue at 20 to five and they didn't get through the queue until 25 past five. That's interesting. What, yeah. day, what day of the week was that? It was, well, it was either Saturday or Sunday morning. I can't remember yeah, which, but either way, it was, a, it was a weekend morning, I, which, I is, which is busy period. But even still, you, you would think, uh, and this is the theory that, that and maybe you'll tell us otherwise because I know you've been doing a bit on this as well. But you would think that the airport always knows, with a reasonable amount of notice, yeah. how many passengers there are going to be on any given morning. Of course, weekends are busier because there's casual tourism. But you'd think they'd know a bit in advance, this is going to be a busy weekend, let's get more staff on. 
and even the weekend just gone, where they had more staff on and they opened the gates earlier than they usually would, still a 45-minute delay mm. at 20 to 5 in the morning to get through with your 100 milliliter. I'm just really glad that I don't have a flight booked at the moment because you know what I'm like? I mean, I used to leave that. When we lived in Castleknock, I would leave the house at the airport <laughs> like an hour before the flight. Yeah, I was a disgrace. I, 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 I'm the opposite. I have that Irish, that Irish dad mode of like, <laughs> I need to get there three hours early, yeah. even if there is no delays at security. Yeah. I need to be there, damn it. Just like, to be like, sure. Like every transatlantic flight, I mean, you just so need to be different. there. I'm the total glass Different vibe. I'm just like, why would you, there's no Need for extra time. Uh, uh, yeah, so um, yeah, obviously it was a situation when I was actually going over to London. Um, I was there super early. It was, again, it was sort of an eight o'clock flight. I got there like three and a half hours early. I even booked the fast track. Didn't use the fast track. Didn't need it. We're through you in know, ten I minutes. I have been burnt with that before, where I've booked fast track and then turned out to be just entirely a nonsense because there was literally mm. no queue. But the thing about it is, um, is that there has been a bad situation there at Dublin Airport. It was at its worst, not last weekend, the weekend before last, when people uh, sent in a load of footage of just massive queues. 300 people missed their flights on that weekend, which is an awful situation. Obviously, we're heading towards Easter holidays and then summer holidays. So the busiest time is still ahead of us. And all this actually dates back to COVID. So this all goes back to when in the middle of the pandemic, the air industry was completely just just slammed. There was um, there was there was no need. So people basically about a thousand people left Dublin Airport in that time. A lot of them were security. So now Dublin Airport starting the process of okay. Well now things are getting back to normal. We need to get more staff in again to run our security checkpoints. And it's such an important job. Like you and I spoke about this today. It is such an important job. And yet the terms and conditions of that job are very precarious. Yes, and there, this is something which DAA is getting a lot of criticism for in the doll in that. Basically, the contracts, the terms of the contracts which are available to security staff are a guaranteed 20 hours a week, but you could option, you might have 40. So you're guaranteed 20. So hang on, you only but get you, paid for 20, but you have to hang around and be No, you'll be paid 40. for what you work. But you need no, to that's be available so you, that's in You need to be available so that basically you, like, you can't do other things in those other 20 Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You have to, so you're, and you're not getting paid. So you're on call effectively without getting paid for being on call. I don't kind know of. that. I don't know that specifically. Well, as in, you know, like you have to be available for 40 hours. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you, and so you can you, work and you can work all of these sort of like mad hours. It's mad hours. And you work yeah. bank holidays and you work well, weekends. Like you, you can be there Exactly. All these mad people like myself who are there super early and you have to be there to, to be pleasant and all that sort of stuff. But this is the thing, and this is actually the point that the SIP2, the union who represents them, is making, is that you work unsociable hours. You have only 20 hours guaranteed. You can be working up to 40. Uh, plus the rate of pay is for, like just over 14 euros an hour. Um, and that's it. That's your top rate. So that doesn't matter if you're working at 4 a.m. in the morning or you work in the bank holiday or whatever. Mm. So I asked Dublin Airport about this. They said, we're competitive, we're hiring aggressively, uh, and we have loads of staff who've been here for many years, and they're all quite happy to be here. But it is a situation. You are starting to see a lot more criticism of Dublin Airport uh, for how they're handling this. Um, some other airports and some people connected to other airports across the country have seen Dublin Airport become just the, this behemoth this giant, which is basically the hub for Ireland. Yeah. They're like, send people our way because we're crying out for passengers and have been in Shannon and Cork for, mm -hmm. for years and years and years. But it's a situation that it has improved, as you sort of say, Zara, okay. um, in that they've put some things in place. People from other areas of the airport are being basically been moved in to help out with people who are queuing. Um, they've opened the security gates, as you are saying, Gavin, yeah. a little bit earlier. But the true test isn't coming until you get to holiday period. And they're still short on the staff of what they need. They 
have a six-week training process and examinations at the end, which means that even if you're trying to hire someone for these jobs, you can't guarantee that they're it, going to pass the exam. They're not going to be in place for Easter weekend, which is nine or ten days' time from so the time this. Is, yeah, this. this so is that's going to be the on. real pressure. This is going to that, be that's weeks a four-day weekend where you could have, you know, I, I mentioned surely you know how many people there's going to be, but there could be a lot of people who will be on the cusp of a four-day weekend and then just decide on a whim to, 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 go and, to go and fly at the last minute. But and even, if the airport can't budget for that, then how are they really supposed to be able to make sure that the, the, the staffing is appropriate for the whole workload they have? You know? But even I noticed when we were going to the Ukrainian border just a couple of weeks ago, I mean, even going through the airport, whatever about security, that was fine. But at the time when we were going through, there's no staff in any of the shops out there. Like, it's very difficult to get served at a counter, I found in my personal experience. Yeah. And uh, I needed to pick up something. And there was, you know, various different counters in the, in the cosmetics area. And you're kind of like, oh, sorry, is there someone working on this counter? And there was like one person manning like three or four counters and they were like oh yeah look we just like lost a load of staff during the pandemic and mm. they're not back yet so that was just an experience wow. I had gone through the airport where I just thought it was interesting that um, it doesn't just seem to be security no, that I think across yet. the board uh, the airport you, is understaffed If you were flying for work uh, did you still only show up like an hour before flight time? No no I didn't <laughs> Joni so <laughs> Joni won't mind me telling me this yeah. Joni's like you Joni's a camera operator Joni's yes. our camera operator who I was with Joni's like you so Joni like Joni and I were coming back it was so funny I, like she won't mind me telling you this she would be like, okay, we have to go get in the queue. For the <laughs> and I'm like, but like we picked our seat, like so we don't have to get in the queue. And she's like, we've got to get in the queue. And oh, so is this, sorry, is this actually queuing for the plane? Home. Yeah, like so we're going to the airport. Well, obviously when she you're boarding, like, but if you have assigned seating, uh, well, you're yeah, not, no, she, not even just the assigned. In general, she just would obviously prefer to be there way in advance. Yeah, whereas yeah. I'm like, we've loads of time. Yeah. Like we're, have when you, you're traveling, have you ever missed a flight? I was going to ask. I've never missed a flight. That's pretty. Despite being such a, like I am a disaster with these things, but I've never missed a flight. I don't know how I've never missed a flight. Like, obviously, it's coming to me. Like, I'll probably miss the next flight. Do you stand up in queue? This is the point I was trying to ask with there. When You know when they call people for boarding? Yeah. Do you stand up in queue at that point? I'm the last People have strong feelings about this, I found. No, but that's it. So, Joan and I were travelling together. When you're travelling with people and you're so different, I'd say I was driving her mad. Like, because we were having, like, um, a bite to eat when we were sitting down. And she's like, we better go down to get to the plane. And I was like, (laughs) I know. I was like, sure, we have our seats booked. Like, and it was so funny. So, she went way ahead of me. But then, because she was in the queue, um, I ended up catching up with her. Did you join her? Did you? No, I would never do that now. No. no, no, I'd rather just be the last person. I don't want to sit on the plane for any longer than I have the, to. The, the only point, and I, I, I'd actually completely agree with you on the, I'm not queuing, I'm not standing and queuing and in a pointless queue. We're crowded. all getting on the plane anyway. COVID and everything, I was a bit like, yeah. But the only, the only counterpoint to that is the overhead bins. Yes. And, and, and yeah, and yeah. in fairness to Joan, she had so much stuff, obviously, as well. So I could understand go. where she was well, coming from with that. The, yeah. the other thing that, actually that, that irks me about uh, planes is not so much the queuing up, because I get the, the demand for the overhead bins and you don't want to have your stuff halfway down the plane because you but get I like on I have my handbag under my seat and they let you keep it under your seat if you're late well, on. It, so it's actually great. Oh, <laughs> you've gained the system. No, but people who, you know when uh, at the end of the flight and then it goes bong and you you, you can take off your seatbelts yeah. and everyone every goes and stands up, up. And, and there's nowhere Why to stand you so, so you're just doing well. this like basically everyone's standing <laughs> up like this wondering when they're going to be able to fully extend I their spines why would you do that I hate it it's worse that is actually the worst and that's worse than the queuing of the way in it's that everybody stands up on the plane yeah. at the end and everybody's like as you say crouched over their head bumping off the overhead lights and fans and like just queuing and it's especially especially if it's uh, there's only one door in the plane yeah. and everything back is, stand, is already standing up and it's like you're going to be waiting a long time sit down it's going to be Good fine. Jets, yeah. But um, I've never missed a flight. I, I find the whole travel thing, and as you can probably see by how animated I am on the subject, I find it extraordinarily stressful. Uh, <laughs> and the worst moments of my life was when I, I, went, I was flying to the States on my own a few years ago, um, and I had a transfer, uh, a connection at Heathrow. 
and um, it was a very narrow window between the flight from Dublin landing in Heathrow and the flight from Heathrow taking off no, from New York. Yeah, no. that. Oh that's my stressful. God, okay. especially when you have to change terminals and go through security again and you're worrying if your bag made it across as well. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my God. And I must have been awful because I was like, there, there was a few people who were on security who were like, don't worry, sir, you're going to get through. I'm telling you, you to calm down. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. I, but I wasn't like freaking out. I wasn't like roaring at anybody or that. But I just must have looked like I must have been sweating and just red from running through Heathrow, which is the world's largest maze. Horrible. I wouldn't wish it on. My problem with traveling like my stressful is just I hate, I rarely do hand luggage only because of the liquids. Like the yeah. liquids, I just can't cope with the liquids. The Shannon Airport has a solution there. It takes there. so many mills to like pull myself together every day. Like I just can't. <laughs> like but, I'm but, not. But the liquids really is such nonsense because I've flown a couple of times since we had kids and you're flying abroad with a, like a flask full of boiling water so that you can make a, a formula bottle on board yeah, if the need arises. But you are. Are you? If it's for, if you're, if it's for feeding the baby, they're like, oh yeah, a litre of scalded boiling water. I've had 100 ml bottle of perfume taken off me. Like, almost oh, cried at security. Another like, one. Another honestly, one for like, shedding tears at security as they <laughs> removed the DKMY from my bag. I was like, no. I did um, the Scottish independence referendum in Scotland. Obviously, that's where it would be. Yes. Uh, and I was going back to Edinburgh Airport. And I was like, I'd bought, and again, this is so stupid because you know the rules. I'd bought in Edinburgh a really nice bottle of Scottish whiskey, whiskey, Scotch whiskey. whiskey yeah. And I was like, this would be great. Now this is nice. But I was just dog tired from the whole week of it. Okay. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I just get to the airport, get to the scanner thing. And I tried to put, like, put my bags through with it. And they're like, can't bring that through here. I was like, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to drink it now? Like, and he's like, no. And he just put it in this. And clearly I'm not the only person. There was a whole stack of all these really lovely bottles of whiskey just piled up at security. And I was like, man, you can make a fortune on how stupid that, people that's are. What, that's yeah. what you get for supporting the untrue whiskey, the whiskey that's spelt without the E. The, the different <laughs> inferior products. That's what you get. Yeah. Do you remember talking about that whiskey tour in Edinburgh? Yeah. The little roller coaster thing. There you go. That that's not our tourism recommendation. Richard and I went on a weekend to Edinburgh. Sorry, we're dragging this on now a little bit, but we're I don't know about a roller coaster at the end of a whiskey tour. So it was, a, it was a thing, it was a barrel. <laughs> you were so excited to I loved there. it. It was one of the great, one of the best tours I've ever done, the Scottish whiskey experience. It's a small world Disneyland rides where it just brings you along a little. I wish that I wish that I could. He was so excited. That's great. I've never, in all the times I've been frenzy, I've never seen you that excited. Well, one of the highlights of my, of my life there, that was. <laughs> This chat about whiskey and other things. We have a small request of you, don't we, Zara? Yeah, we want you to like, share, and subscribe. I feel grubby asking you to do that, but I really think it would make a big difference to us. There's been a couple of reviews. We've had a few uh, reviews in. I good and bad, let's be honest. Look, yeah, I'll take the good with the bad in this industry. Uh, a good one from go on. 2021 Alana. Amazing team. They bring laughter from darkness that's happening around the world. You guys are such a heartwarming news team. I hope you will have your own show. In the meantime, keep them coming. Your podcast, 100% fun to listen to. Uh, I wish you guys the best. I think that's what it says. Nice uh, Leo V999 says boring, boring and boring. I mean, I really hope it's Leo not the V. Punisher. <laughs> I hope it's not the also, Punisher. I will note that the date of that review was before we even released an episode. So ah, sure, look thanks, it. Leo. Thanks, thanks <laughs> Leo. And anyway, like, share and subscribe. Thank you for joining the group chat again for another week. We'll be back next Thursday. Bye. Bye. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.